Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here. This evening is a very personal and special and unique to me and to so many others, and by extension to every one of you. See, this is the 26th yard site, the anniversary of the passing of my great mentor and teacher and spiritual leader called the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Some of you may be familiar with my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, which distills his teachings, which in turn distills the teachings of the sages for over 90 generations. A book that presents these ideas in universal terms and very much has been my dedication of my life, my labor of love, the years that I spent listening to, absorbing, remembering, and then publishing the Rebbe's words. So I dedicate this program to the Rebbe, who I would not be who I am were it not for him. He ignited my soul. We ignite souls. We don't create souls. We ignite each other's souls. And apropos, the topic we will be discussing is a fundamental one to each one of us. From coal to diamond, how do you react under pressure? The Rebbe's revolutionary message for our turbulent times. From coal to diamond. Now, I know some of the more accurate perfectionists among you will say coal to diamond. That's an urban legend. That's an old wives' tale. That uh, myth that people perpetuate that a diamond is made out of coal. So why would we title coal to diamond? Well, when preparing this program, we actually consider from carbon to diamond. That's obviously much more accurate. Carbon, carbon with intense pressure creates a diamond. And yet the expression is coal. Coals are made from carbon. There's still a mysterious element to all of it. So I'm not here to state this scientific fact. It's an expression. Let's think of it as an expression. But the key thing to remember is the pressure. What pressure can do to just plain carbon can turn it into one of the most precious stones, one of the most brilliant stones, one that shines and glows, that represents for so many of us romance, love, uniqueness. I'm not getting into the marketing of it. It has that element, crystal, the crystal of the diamond. The focus, of course, here is the pressure what pressure does to us. So how do you react under pressure? How do you react? You have people, pressure, and they go ballistic. They lose it. Impossible. They can't handle it. When things are calm, they have compo they're composed, they plan, they strategize. But as soon as there's pressure, they'll say, stop pressuring me. I'm not good under pressure. You're making me crazy. Other people, interestingly, by contrast, when there's pressure, they stay calm. Some of them even get calmer, like the eye of a tornado. Amidst all the chaos and pressure around them, they, in a sense, rise to the occasion. Is there an ingredient for this, or just we are wired differently? This is not a small question, only when we're in a particularly pressured situation, or crisis, or chaos. It's really, in life, we will all be facing at times situations where there is pressure. 
It can be financial pressure. It can be personal pressures. It can be imagined or real. It can come from many different directions. And often that's when you see what a person is really made of. When they are under pressure, when things are regular or routine, you don't always know. When you see pressure, you see either the worst comes, the best. People can have rage. Some people, as I said, rise to the occasion, nobility, aplomb, dignity under pressure. And this is particularly true, especially in our times. These are turbulent times. Upheaval. First the COVID-19 surprise. Then the last few weeks, we have the civil unrest. Racial tensions re-emerging. And when you think about both on an individual and collective sense, it's a time that can really shake people up. There are pressures. Some people have lost their jobs. Many people have lost their jobs. Some people have lost their health. Some people have lost loved ones. These are real traumas. What's unique here is that it's not happening just to one person. It's pretty much global. So there's that whole other exponential element. And we're not out of it. So you know how you've reacted when things did not work out the way you were expecting, when suddenly new pressures were released. What did it do to you? We're going to address not only what it does to us, but what we can have it do for us, to actually turn it into from carbon to diamond, from coal to diamond. That's the obvious goal. You you see leaders, whether um, political leaders, business leaders, we spoke about leaders last week, the the vacuum, the lack of leadership. When you do see true leaders in history, you see their leadership really shines and they really really uh, live up to, true, to the true leadership and their true potential when they're under pressure. You see it in times of war, especially. War is, of course, a time of bloodshed, unexpected situations, dealing with all kinds of enemies and forces and unknowns. And you see the true leaders, the true commanders-in-chief, the true generals, how they behave under that type of pressure. As I mentioned, they are people who rise to the occasion. They are at their best when they have that calm, that reserve. Not that they're not aware of what's going on, but something about them that gives you confidence. You feel you're in the hands of a master. I mentioned war because war is one of the most pressured situations that people could be under. Not just the individuals, but especially people who are leading others. A decision you make can cause people to die. It's life and death. It's not small matters. So we look at all these events in history, we look at historical leaders to look for what are the, what is the formula. And I, as I said at the outset, I'm going to share what I've learned from my great teacher and Rebbe. Beyond his brilliant mind, his compassionate heart, his charisma, his positive, motivational infusion of confidence to every person, making you feel you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. All great qualities of leadership. But above all, how did he behave under pressure? And 
what did he access and what did he teach us to access? I have in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, an additional chapter that was not written in the first edition. It's called Change and Upheaval. So I recommend that as a complement to what I'll be discussing here in this talk. Change and Upheaval. How did he behave? But more importantly, how did he teach us? And how can we learn? And it comes down to, yes, a real formula. I don't mean that in a technical sense of the word. I mean in a methodology, an approach that all of us can learn to employ because we have those tools within us, but often we may not even know that. Because, as has to always be mentioned, many of our attitudes, I would say most of our attitudes, if not all of our attitudes, how we react to situations, including pressured situations, how do we learn to react from those that have shaped us in our formative years? It begins with our parents, our immediate family, our educators, our schools, our first influencers who've influenced us, our community, our friends, the society in which we lived. When we saw how our mother and father reacted when something was unexpected or even traumatic, a pressured situation, whether they went ballistic and came out of control and frustrated, started blaming others, or the opposite, they suddenly became something so dignified to look at that you felt a calm enter, that though there was crisis, here you felt that in in your parents' arms you have direction, guidance, clarity, security. That's a key word. So when you see the people around you behaving in very fearful and negative ways, It teaches you something, that when there's pressure, when there's difficult situations, you can lose it. You lose confidence, you lose security. Children are terrified far more than any given situation than the reaction of the people around them to that situation. You have examples of this. God forbid a fire breaks out at home at night and the parents lose it and they don't know how to react. The children become more terrified. If the parents think and, our, and, and think soberly and methodically, what do we do to get out of here? That alone creates a calm and the children feel more relaxed. It's still a crisis. But one is like a captain riding a, a ship in the storm, doesn't know what he's doing, or he completely loses his composure, loses his control. Or there's a storm, the same storm, but the captain is guiding the ship. It's riding through the storm. There's a confidence There's a fortitude, there's a composure. That changes the attitude of all around. So we as children are very deeply impacted by that. As parents, must always remember that. That it's not just the situation, it's how you react to the situation that's going to impact, and sometimes forever, our own children, who are like a warm ball of wax. Every experience they experience becomes etched and hardened into their psyches, wired in. So that's where our first reactions come from. We need to know that. So if you suddenly panic, you have a panic attack due to whatever pressured situation it is or other such very desperate type of reaction, it's usually because you feel you're losing your security, you're losing control, and you don't realize that you may have tools that can can steady your ship, your boat, even through this storm. 
So it's all about discovering deeper resources that we all have. So what did I learn? What do we learn from true leaders? So I want to share a story. I'll start with a story. I've told this story a number of times, but it just captures the essence. It's a story that the Rebbe told a number of times about his own father-in-law, who lived in very, very difficult, maybe the most difficult times in all of history, under Stalin's Soviet Union, and then in Nazi Europe, in Latvia, and in Poland. So he was arrested in 1927. Actually, this is a period of time that we celebrate in a, in a week from now. We celebrate his liberation from prison. He was arrested for what? Counter-revolutionary activity. Counter-revolutionary activity. What was he doing? He was encouraging his students and the Jewish people, and all people for that matter, to embrace their faith and their beliefs and their traditions this was seen as a threat to the Soviet Union that saw religion as the opiate of the masses. And they did everything possible to eradicate religion. And they identified him as being a force and a source of great strength and inspiration to the people. Get rid of him, you'll weaken the morale of so many. He was, of course, a person of great spirit, and great resolve and determination, and was not felt then, was undeterred by these threats, threats to his life, and they ultimately arrested him in 1927. Now, this was not a place where there was any uh, due process. They could kill you on the spot. And yet, he maintained that resolve, as he writes in his diary, which he called, interestingly, Tractate from Hell. I'm sorry, tractate from hell. Because they tortured him, it was hell. It was hell on earth. He made a decision in his own heart that he cannot give in psychologically and feel like a prisoner. So he did not cooperate. He insisted they bring his talis and his tefillin so he can pray. He insisted on many things that were not exactly even rational, putting himself in further danger. But for him, to compromise his spirit was, the, was synonymous with death. He refused to speak in Russian, even though he was fluent in Russian, he spoke in Yiddish. And some of his captors were actually Jewish and spoke fluent Yiddish. They came from, they were grandchildren of Hasidim, of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak grandparents but they had become rabid anti-Semites, the worst sort. They were the ones that hated more than others, even more than their non-Jewish colleagues, these committed Jews. They felt it their duty to uproot and destroy every remnant of tradition in the Soviet Union. They were called the Yevsekzia. That was the Jewish communists. And when the Rebbe refused to cooperate, you can imagine, they were furious. Finally, one of them, a Jewish man whose grandfather was a chassid of the Tzemach Sadek, a grandfather of the previous Rebbe, points a gun to the Rebbe's head, says, enough is enough. This object here, this pistol, this revolver, has changed many a mind 
begin to cooperate. The Rebbe, calm, composed, unfazed, looks at him with his very sharp eyes and says, this toy, he called it a tzatzke, this toy can frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone who has one god and many worlds. Every day you have a different God based on your passions and desires and temptations. So if someone's going to take away your life, you have only one world and many gods. You're terrified because you have nothing else to rely on except your material world. I have many worlds. I have a spiritual world and I have many spiritual worlds. I have diversified. I mean, I don't want to use a word from investment, but I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. I've diversified. I have many places to turn to. Of course I want to live. I'm explaining what the Rebbe said. But don't think you can frighten me because I have many dimensions to what is valuable. Taking my physical life does not end my existence because I have my faith and I have my beliefs and I have my legacy and I have my students and I have my teachings which will live on. I have one God, one higher reality that you cannot destroy and many worlds. Two worlds. I think it was Lulov that said to him, he was the Jewish communist, said to him, Rebbe, okay, we will see who will prevail. And in Yiddish, the Rebbe responds, yes, we will see who will prevail over whom. Within a few weeks, you can imagine, Lulov and the others were killed. I mean, they were just, uh, it's just a matter of time. And the Rebbe miraculously was freed from prison and came home and ultimately was le- left the country, and ultimately would go to Europe, and end up in the United States 80 years ago, 1940, middle of World War II. And this was just one of his travails and his uh, challenges. This is the essence of a coal becoming a diamond. The pressure, not only did it not deter and phase, or in any way, weaken or frighten this leader, it brought the best out of him. Because what he did was he dug deeper into his spirit what he stands for, and that you are not going to take from me. Do you imagine the strength? Do you imagine the power when someone has the ability to look at someone with a gun pointed to their head and say, you cannot frighten me. Once you take away that power from someone who has the gun, what else can they do? Now, unfortunately, some people have died and been killed. So I'm not going to suggest it's always a happy ending in the technical sense of the word, but there's always a happy ending over time. What happens is, exactly as the cliche says, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And the answer lies exactly in his words. What are the words? I have a higher reality. I'm defining God now. Something that is not human and mortal. Something that you cannot kill because it wasn't born. You didn't give birth to it. Something that is uh, indestructible. And when I have that as part of my foundation, you can't destroy me because I'm connected to that. As far as my worlds go, as a result, I have many worlds, I have many options. I saw this with my own eyes. I saw it because, though I was a baby boomer, born, born in the late 50s, 56, 1956, 
the Rebbe assumed leadership. The Rebbe, who's 26, the outside, we're honoring tonight and tomorrow, assumed leadership in 1950. It's five years after World War II. I think we don't need to imagine much what kind of world it was. It was a world that was devastated. Over 120 million people died in the two world wars. For as far as the Jewish people goes, six million. One third of this poultry nation of just 18 million were decimated in the Holocaust. The morale was not exactly high because the survivors had lost their homes, had lost their cities, they lost their communities. It was bad, difficult times. And logically, rationally, you would think a demoralized people would give up. They would give up. But they did not give up. And according to statistics, all those that analyzed it said at the time, they wrote the obituary, the Jewish people will be gone by the year 1990. You know, calculating, the older people dying. So many of the leaders, community leaders, the teachers, the educators, the rabbis, were all killed. America, assimilation was devastating the rest of the Jewish people. So if you made a statistical evaluation, it doesn't make sense that the Jews couldn't survive this. Yet, the resilience of a people is not determined by statistics. It's not a numbers game. It's determined by something that is not measurable and not quantifiable. And that's called spirit, the willpower, the commitment, the devotion to life and to life's mission. Viktor Frankl turned it into entire psychology, logotherapy, which was confirmed, even though he developed the ideas before, but confirmed in the Holocaust when he saw people who suffered just as everyone else, but they had one additional asset in their arsenal. Faith, meaning, purpose. That gave them that edge, not to suffer less, but to have greater strengths in the, through the suffering. Not let the suffering define them. So the revolutionary message is that in the spirit of a human being lie resources, treasures that we don't even know. They only emerge when we're challenged. They only emerge when we're pressured. Take away the pressure and they will not emerge. Think of it. It's a law of physics. It's a basic law of physics. Resistance creates energy. If you were to, if I would say to you, push my hand, and if I don't show any resistance, you'll push, and I'll move back, back, back. But if I resist, you're going to exert more energy to get to respond to my resistance. You build a dam. The dam blocks the water, impedes the water from flowing. What happens after a while? The water builds up and builds up and builds up. Tremendous pressure is created. That pressure can actually be harnessed into energy that we, we harness from water. It would never be harnessed. The same water without the resistance would just flow. It would be very gentle, seemingly innocent flow. That same water put up resistance. The greater the resistance, the more the pressure will be built up the positive and the negative of electricity. Everything, resistance, creates tremendous amounts of energy. 
So in essence, what pressure is doing, it squeezes you. And when it squeezes you, yes, you can yell out, I'm feeling squeezed, I'm feeling asphyxiated, I'm feeling constrained. Or that squeezing creates a surge that you would never get without that pressure. I mean, just think of the heartbeat, contraction and expansion. The contraction creates the expansion. You want to pump. To pump something like the heartbeat, the pump of the heart, you contract and that forces the water out. You'll always find those two poles. So when you apply it now psychologically and emotionally to our lives, it's exactly the story. Pressure is not something we want or we welcome, but it brings out tremendous energy. Now, if you don't know you have that energy or you retreat and resign and surrender, that energy will never emerge because the press will say, you know, I'm out of here. It's not for me. Or you allow it to seep in and bring out that bestness outside of you. The Talmud says an interesting expression about olive oil. That was also a possible title for this program. Olive oil. An olive does not produce oil until what? Until you press it. Until you pressure it. You need to squeeze it. The pressure may not be as intense as other forms of pressure, but it's still pressure. So, lesson number one is, when there's pressure in life, which can be a result of suddenly your life is not in your control, your schedule has been upended, plans have been disrupted, that's a pressure. You may have lost a job. You may be having difficulties in your relationship due to all that's going on. Remember that the pressure can bring out the best in you. It could also bring out the worst in you. What you want to know and recognize is that you have within yourself resources that if you allow the pressure to be harnessed properly, those resources will emerge. Who is it that said, they said about a woman, but the truth is you could say about anybody under pressure, that a woman's like a tea bag. You don't know how strong she is until you put her into hot water. It's exactly right, a tea bag, an innocuous, simple tea bag. You know, tea leaves inside of a little sack. Or tea leaves on, on their own without a sack. Without a, without a tea bag. You think of it and you didn't, wouldn't know better. Okay. You suddenly put it into hot water. What does the heat do? The heat releases something. And this is true what heat does for so many foods and drinks and so on. It releases the potency of the tea. And this is true throughout in nature. Wherever you go, you see this. I remember reading once. A caterpillar turns into a butterfly, right? The metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. So, you would never believe it, but a caterpillar at some point will go into its cocoon, into its chrysalis, which will be spun and slowly close up, and the caterpillar will completely be submerged in this dark cave. And you would think it's the end of its life. No, it's not the end of its life. A new stage of life will begin after this transition as the chrysalis begins to open. And the caterpillar is now 
turned into a butterfly. It's developed wings, whereas a caterpillar could only crawl on the ground, now it will be able to fly. But those stages are critical. As the chrysalis begins to peel away, like an, like an egg that's cracking, and the butterfly is beginning to emerge, the butterfly struggles because the chrysalis is constraining it, it's pressuring it. And what happens next? So after a while, the butterfly finally makes its way out and takes its first journey, its first flight. So the story goes, an individual, a compassionate individual, sees this butterfly struggling to get out of the chrysalis. So it's in a deep mercy and compassion for the butterfly. says, it's struggling, let me help. He goes ahead, takes a knife, and cuts away the chrysalis to make it easier and quicker for the butterfly to free itself. And that's what happens. He helped the butterfly. What happens next? He's waiting and waiting and waiting. The butterfly will not move. It's on a branch, and it does not take flight. It does not take wing. The butterfly has wings. He can't understand what happened. What's the matter? Until he learns, or someone shares with him, you did the greatest disservice to this butterfly. In your compassion, you destroyed the butterfly's life. You know why? Because part of the process of having the aerodynamics in the wings to be able to fly is the pressure that's built up as the butterfly struggles, it forces the pressure liquid into its wings. And because you did not allow the butterfly to struggle under that pressure, you wanted it to be effortless, the butterfly never was able to gain those liquid that had to go into its wings for it to be able to fly. So sometimes when we see pressure, we say, no, let's, let's try to get rid of the pressure. That's a grave mistake. Pressure is what causes us to grow and allows us, yes, to take flight. Now, this does not mean we have to ask for undue pressure. We all pray and that we should be blessed with minimal amount of pressure in our lives. But we must have some pressure. Whether it's the pressure growing up, peer pressure, whether it's the pressure of the transitions in our life from childhood through adolescence, through teenage years, through adults, whether there's the pressure of a new job, of having to prove yourself that you can do it, taking tools you're not experienced yet. Who doesn't have pressure? As a writer, as a speaker, I can tell you the pressures of deadlines, the pressures of wanting to excel, the tentativeness and the fear sometimes Will I be able to really convey the message? Everywhere in life, show me excellence and I'll show you pressure. Like the butterfly. So this is an attitude change. We sometimes grow up spoiled, comfortable, a sense of entitlement. And we don't want extra pressures. Let someone else do the job for me. You know, there are things that you must do. Even if you have all the money in the world and you could hire someone, you have to do it. Because you need the, wing, the liquid in your wings. You need to be able to take flight. And that can only happen when there's pressure. 
the excellence that comes through competition. Who likes competition? I just want to win. And you have people ready to cheat in order to win. So they win. Technically, yes, they get a good reputation. I mean, say it's a good reputation. People think they have a good reputation because they won, came in first. Later you find out they cheated. So of course, besides the ethics of it, they didn't really win. It was it's, it's false, it's a fabrication. Because they never allowed the pressure of true competition to bring the best out of them. So they resorted to other means, either because they didn't have the confidence that they could actually make it, or because they actually couldn't make it, and they didn't deserve to be the winner. And yet how many people will, if nobody's watching, will impede someone else's way so you can win? And you could say, hey, look, I won, because it feels good. But it's the pressure that really creates excellence. Yes, excellence. And you ask anyone who's ever achieved excellence, they'll say, it was the people that defeated me, that beat me, my opponents, whether it was in tennis or in other sports. I don't know if now's the time to talk about sports, but there was a thing called sports, and I'm sure there'll be again. That was the competition. It was my bitter losses that I cried over and that I poured and studied over what did I do wrong again and again and again that allowed me to strengthen my resolve, to improve my skills, my abilities, and my experience and confidence to go back into the ring and this time be even better until I became number one and I won. So pressure is something we all resist and don't want but is the thing that will turn you from carbon into a diamond now it's all nice talk theoretically but i saw it with my own eyes in 1950 as i mentioned post holocaust every reason to surrender to give up resignation and i saw a man the rebbe in the spirit of his father-in-law did not take no for an answer he said, no, we are not victims. We're not survivors even. We are proactive souls who have the power to achieve anything we set our mind to do. We have one God and many worlds. One higher reality and many options. Don't underestimate that power. Because when things are really dire and difficult, and you can close your eyes and say, I'm reaching Give me a little strength. I have something I stand for. Something my parents stood for. My grandparents stood for. Virtue. The battle for goodness to win over darkness. Goodness over evil. Light over darkness. When that becomes your driving engine, that your whole life is driven by that, what do you think happens when there's an impediment and something blocks your way? You don't say, oh, okay, too difficult. You say, that, I'm going to use that to build even more commitment and more devotion and more strength like that water that builds up. And we'll break through that darkness. So darkness, ironically and paradoxically, gives the commitment, creates a stronger commitment to the ambassador of light to be even more light, to create more light in order to overcome this darker situation. The competition is making you stronger. My enemy makes me wiser. When you have that attitude, you're unbeatable. 
Because if you win the battle, obviously you're a winner. But even if you're losing, or at least ostensibly it appears that there's a setback, you never see it that way. Because you're connected to something higher. There's a higher narrative. There's a greater story. There's a history. And there's a future. I am not going to be overcome and overwhelmed by the moment. The story is not over. The story will continue. If not me, it will be my children, my grandchildren. I will pass on the narrative to them as it was passed on to me. You cannot sever and destroy a chain that goes back thousands of years. Now, of course, each of us is a link and our own weakness can compromise. But when you realize this is a chain, a marathon that began so long ago and the baton was passed on from generation to generation in the most difficult of circumstances. And my ancestors became stronger. Now it's passed on to me. You think a gun pointed to my head is going to suddenly change that? Now you'll say, does everyone have that type of willpower, that type of faith? I'm not arguing that we do. But we all can relate to it in some way. That's what we do when we connect to something greater than ourselves, a cause greater than ourselves, a person that represents a cause greater than ourselves. Then we become an extension of it. It brings to mind the story, I think it was the Blazhen Rebbe. He was a Rebbe, one of the Hasidic Rebbes, who unfortunately in the towns of Poland, his whole town, almost all were killed. This Rebbe and his disciples and students ended up in one of the camps, concentration camps. As I said, many were killed, but they were there. In this particular camp, everyone had their own cruel commandants. And this one, there was a very particularly cruel Nazi, who liked to play a game. You know what the game was? He would have the Jews dig these wide trenches in the ground. And then he would say to his guards, to all the people there, now starts the game. The Jews that jump over this trench and make it to the other side live, and those that don't will be shot on the spot and they'll fall into that trench. You can imagine, besides all the pain and the loss and the suffering and the dehumanization, like worse than animals, how they behaved, the Nazis. So there were a few that really felt, this is it. I mean, I have no time for such games and patience. So one of the Hasidim said to the Rebbe, Rebbe, God doesn't want us to live. Let's just give up. And we allow ourselves to be shot. I'm not going to play a game to jump over a trench. And the Rebbe said to him, as long as we have one ounce of strength left, and we're blessed with that we're still breathing, we have to do everything possible to fight and the game began, quote-unquote, this tragic game. And you can imagine, many were killed. And in the mayhem, no one knew who lived, who didn't live. The Rebbe and his chassid were separated. And each, of course, thought the other one was killed. They were both not killed. But they thought they were. Within a few weeks, the camps were liberated. And everybody was released, those that were still the, survived. And lo and behold, the Chassid and Rebbe reunite. I don't know how long it will afterwards, maybe a year, two years later. And they're surprised to see each other. They both thought for sure 
during that last shooting, none of them would survive. The Chosset says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, you're not a young man. How did you jump over that trench? And the Rebbe looked at him with a serious and confident look. He said, I closed my eyes and I imagined my, grandf- my father and my grandfather and great-grandfather and I held on to their coattails, to everything they stood for. I held on with my dear life and he gave me the strength to jump. The Rebbe then turns to this man and says, one second, you're also not a young man. How did you jump? She said to the Rebbe, I held on to your coattails. There are causes, my friends, that are greater than we are. You know, in this world, we sometimes think the illusion, I want to be in control of everything. The greatest things in life we're not in control of. We're not in control of. There are causes that we need to embrace. Embrace a cause greater than yourself. Those are the coattails that you hang on to. And in times of need, and in times of pressure, and in times of distress and duress, even in the throes of the abyss, you have something to hold on to. It's the cause. The cause that preceded you and that will follow after you. And when you dedicate yourself to that, the cause lifts you up to another place. One God, one higher cause, one higher purpose, one higher reality. And many worlds, because then there's many options how to realize that cause, realize that purpose in life. Though we cannot compare today to those times, not even comparable, but we're living through our own turbulence now through our own upheavals, through our own shakeups, And everything is relative. Yes, today, much of it is because we were so comfortable. So this really has been a shock. So whatever you're going through, whether it's more serious or less serious, some shake, some shakeup, some disruption, some destabilization, creates pressure. Pressure is the fuel for excellence with one condition that you're connected to something that lifts you up to there if not the pressure can overwhelm pressure creates the diamond so again we're not asking for extra pressure but anything that comes our way and it's not in our control we can't do anything about it no never think like a victim Never think like a sufferer. Oh, you know what? What am I supposed to do? It's not in my control. What's not in your control is the events. What's in your control is totally who you're going to hold on to. What cause? What higher purpose? People dismiss faith, trust. Every piece of currency in the United States is in God we trust. Not just we believe, trust. Trust is a tremendous asset. When you trust another human being in your life, total trust, your spouse, loved ones, friends, what's trust? Can you buy trust? No. You have to earn it. You can't buy it. You can't sell it. When people say, trust me, what does that mean? Trust means that you can sleep peacefully at night, no matter what. Even if no one's watching, you know the person that you trust is going to be trustworthy. It creates such element of calm and serenity and security. 
You know your parents are there for you. You can go to sleep at night. The contrast just exposes sometimes things that are healthy we don't really feel appreciate. Let's talk about the contrast. God forbid, someone just shared with me and one of many tragic stories. My father would come home a, 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 a raving drunk, alcoholic. We had no idea when he would come, when he would come, how he'd behave. See, I would tremble in my bed because sometimes he would come and yelling and screaming and schlepping me out of my bed and even being physical. He says, it wasn't just the physical, it was the unpredictability. I couldn't trust him. And the next day, he was the sweetest man. Let's go to the park. Let's do this, let's do that. And you think that's beautiful, but that doesn't compensate because there was no trust. There was nothing to rely on. I couldn't depend on it. Security is not dependent on what you do for me. Security is dependent that you know that no matter what, you're there for you. I'm there for you. So trust in a cause, trust in a higher reality is actually the most important asset in life. People say, today we live in a scientific world. What do I need? Faith, trust in God. We have science, we have medicine. Well, look at this pandemic, what it has shown about science and medicine. Not to take away from the medical community doing wonderful heroism, risking themselves, working on it. But my point is, you cannot rely on mortals for utter absolute security. There comes now a pandemic, and we don't know what this virus is about. We'll find out, and we will conquer it. But meanwhile, things are shaking. Things are being disrupted. The world is shaking. But when you rely on something that is greater than science and medicine, greater than any human achievement, greater than anything human and mortal altogether, the immortality of that cause creates total trust. And when you have that, nothing shakes you. That doesn't mean you're not prudent, doesn't mean you try to make life as easy and comfortable as possible. So if anything, times of turbulence, times of upheaval, is when we need it most. We need that rope, we need something to hold on to. And not out of desperation, out of strength. Something that gives us that additional edge, the coattails, to be able to make that jump, to maintain course, to steady the ship, to navigate, to get through the difficult moments. This is what I saw with my own eyes. This is what I learned. And not as magic and not as a miracle. I learned that that's what people have within them. They don't even know it. Because either they don't allow themselves to be pressured or they retreat, they resign before they allow the strengths to emerge. Take it on, head on. And say, I am driven by a cause. Yes, it's 1950, it's right after the war. There are refugees, demoralized, broken spirits, families completely ripped apart. But we have a cause that didn't begin in 1950. It begins in the beginning of history. When Abraham said, when the Bible and the Torah says about Abraham, a man who committed his life and his family to do justice and virtue and kindness. Not just for him, for generations to come. And you look back, he changed the world. He stood up against a pagan, selfish, materialistic, egocentric world. And he changed it. It took time. But time and pressure creates greatness. Each of us has within us a diamond, many diamonds. 
it takes pressure to reveal it. So pressure should be welcomed. Again, not invited when you don't need it, but it's there already to be welcomed as a tool, as a catalyst to bring out the best in each one of us. It's one of the great lessons, and I would call it a revolutionary lesson, because precisely in our comfortable times, eh, living in very difficult times, okay, we see it every day, people who have to struggle, they have to build that resilience. But 1950 was the beginning of an age of prosperity, a baby boom, economic prosperity. There would be no world war after that. Things would develop and grow in all fronts, medical, breathtaking breakthroughs, technology. Here we are in 2020. Everyone thought at the beginning of this year, just going right up, up, up. It's far harder to bring out that excellence from pressure when you're comfortable. Because when you're comfortable, hey, nothing forcing us. So your strengths are not emerging. So though we didn't ask for it, and we would prefer not to have it, and definitely not the death and the losses and the grief that COVID-19 has caused. But after the fact that it's here, let us embrace it. Not the negative. Let us embrace the challenge that is posing to us. That in our comfortable 2020, 21st century, let that force the liquid into our wings. Let us force pressure that brings new strengths or hidden strengths and allows us to be greater than ever. You see the innovation, the creativity that people have employed in family life, entertainment, in connecting with each other, using technology, using new methods. That innovation only comes as a result of because certain options were not allowed to us. Couldn't go to work. Can't go to a baseball game. You can't escape to a restaurant or to a theater or to some other show. So now you have to find other ways to stimulate. Has it brought out the worst in some people? Unfortunately. But it doesn't have to. So my friends, from carbon to diamond, when you're able to access that deep, those deeper resources, then yes, under pressure, your reaction will become one that makes you a greater person. How do you do that? Connect to your soul. Discover that part of you that is indestructible. Discover the part of you that is not frightened of anything. The deepest part of the deepest, the deepest place where all real security comes from. The connection of knowing that you were put on this earth with an indispensable mission. A mission and a purpose that outlives and is more powerful than any impediment than any setback and it's your mission so whatever happens in your life it's all part of that narrative it may not always go straight line sometimes there'll be twists and turns sometimes there'll even be some setbacks but it's a journey forward and you're not traveling alone you're traveling on the midget on the shoulders of those that came before us, of giants. It's a long chain. We hold on to the coattails of those that came before us. And we allow ourselves to be held on to by those that come after us, our children, grandchildren, our students, people we influence. 
So instead of thinking about me, 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 which actually undermines your real security, ironically, you think about we, 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 you think about the higher cause. And that gives you in turn strength, more strength when you just say, I'm a self-made person. Obviously, we need our individuality and we need our own resources. But we need to realize it's all coming from higher and greater strengths. My dear friends, in honor of my great mentor's 26th anniversary of his soul ascending on high. But certain things don't die. The spirit doesn't die. The message doesn't die. The methodology doesn't. The legacy, the students. The Rebbe and everything he stands for lives right inside here by me all the time. It's like my heart. It's a heartbeat. And I don't say that. I'm a natural skeptic. I don't say it in any glassy-eyed, naive way. It's a person who taught me about what human spirit is capable of. A person who taught me to find my calling to help others find their calling. So he represented, if he was sitting right here, he would say, I represent a cause that's greater than me too. It's never about the person. It's always about the cause that they represent. And that cause is immortal. So as sad as it is that I cannot see and I cannot touch and I cannot communicate as I once did with my great teacher, but I do communicate and I do touch in a different way, not with the five senses, with supersensory tools. The drive. I can tell you, since COVID-19 broke mid-March, when it became serious in our eyes, what's driving me is exactly, I feel like I was trained for this moment. Trained because I was sat by the feet of this great man, who sat by the feet of great men before him. Not to compare, but it all comes down to that, that we are channels of a greater cause than we are. And that gives us a certain perpetual, eternal power that's greater than who we are. The cause is greater than you and I. And the greatest gift is for you to be an ambassador, a channel, a conduit of allowing that force to come into this world. Like every artist and writer will tell you, there's at times in the zone Something's just working its way through me. I just have to get myself out of the way. That doesn't take away from the artist's contribution because getting yourself out of the way is effort. But you have to allow it to extend. And I'll conclude with a story that I heard from my great teacher. It was Purim in the year 1983. And he was talking about his own influence. And he said, sometimes one wonders, and he was talking about himself, whether I'm doing the right thing. We're all coming together at a big fabrega a gathering. Everyone's coming to listen to me. Maybe it would be much more productive if everyone stayed home and did their own studies and their own prayers, not all coming to hear one person speak. And then he said, I reminded myself of a story that I heard from my father-in-law, that the Alter Rebbe, Rabshneer Zamn of Liadi, founder of Chabad Hasidic movement, the Rebbe was seven generations from him, was once at home, and he sees the Hasidim, his students, coming from the window. He sees them coming. They're coming to hear. They want to hear his teachings. And he says to his wife, what do they want from me? And he's about to close the curtains, lock the door, and not let them in. His wife, his Rebetzin, saw that she needs to say something that will have a happy ending, a good ending. She says to her husband, 
the great teacher. She says, they're coming to hear what your teacher has to say. As soon as he heard that, he said, if that's the case, I will say and I will say. And he opened the doors, they came in and he taught. Because it wasn't about him. Want to hear what my teacher has to say? Then, of course, I will speak and speak. And the Rebbe said, because I had the opportunity to listen to my teacher, so I realized there's something value into this Fabrain because I'm not speaking what I have to say, I'm speaking what my teacher has to say. And every teacher will tell you that about the one before. Because the cause is truly eternal. My dear friends, connect to a cause. Find that voice, that song of your soul. Let it sing, let it speak, let it soar. And that will give you the strength and the power to ride through any tumultuous situation, to be a true diamond, a true diamond, that the pressures, even the crisis and traumas and challenges all come to make you more powerful than ever before. This has been Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center. Please go to MeaningfulLife.com for many more resources on this topic and many others. We see this as a partnership. Please share, like, comment, react, suggest. Do not hesitate because we're all part of one larger picture. Again, MeaningfulLife.com. We're here every Wednesday, 8.30, live, but also then archived. You can download it as a podcast on all the platforms and many other programs. Go to MeaningfulLife.com and you'll see schedule of programs and events for different types of audiences, different subjects, and it's a great honor. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.